I have people do a visualization and it, it's in the book where they're imagining their ideal death. And ideally you would do this long before you're actively dying, long before you have a, a terminal diagnosis or in any kind of active phase of dying, where you really imagine this, this beautiful death exactly as you want it. And it can be as unique and as weird as you want it to be. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's yours. It's your time. And it feels really good. Like it feels just right. And to do that as a meditation and maybe even do it like several times until it's in there and then let it go, set it aside. And that way you can access that whenever or wherever your death happens to be. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, death doula and author Anne-Marie Keppel joins me to discuss her book, Death Nesting, The Heart-Centered Practices of a Death Doula. Anne-Marie explains what a death doula is. She discusses the importance of thinking about the ideal death, the art of living well and dying well, time retrieval, whether the dead should attend their own funerals, and why we should wail more. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Anne-Marie Keppel is a death doula educator and founder of the nonprofit Village Death Care. A nurse assistant, Reiki master, and lifelong meditator, she guides individuals transitioning out of life and assists families with the end-of-life journey. Experienced in home funerals, green burials, and psychedelic-assisted therapy, her work as a death doula has been published nationally in the Washington Times, on usnews.com, and in Pulp Magazine. She won an independent publisher, Ippy Award, in 2020. She joins me today to discuss her book, Death Nesting, The Heart-Centered Practices of a Death Doula. Anne-Marie, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you very much, Nicholas. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. It's interesting. You are, I think, the third person, the third death doula I've had on the program. I had Philida Anamira, who was lovely to speak with, and your friend Sally Crow. And I thought, I was thinking back on these conversations, I don't know that I have ever asked any of my guests to explicitly state what a death doula is. In the introduction, I think it's kind of there, what a death doula does, but I thought that maybe I could ask you to begin, what is a death doula? Is there anything that was left out in that bio? Yeah. What, starting with what is a death doula is a very good place to start. Yeah. <laughs> so the, from the very beginning of time, there have been death doulas. As soon as there was the first person that was born, the somebody attended, and this has been going on for generations, it's a very beautiful, ancient, and natural tradition to just help each other in times of need. So of course there have been birth doulas assisting babies coming into the world. And then oftentimes those same people would be helping to escort the person out of this world as well. So it's very old. It is nothing new at all. The term death doula 
is a little bit newer and kind of trending at this point. The idea of what a death doula is, is something that really catching people's attention. And for, for whatever reason, I'm not sure. But it was an answer to the over-medicalized way that death has now been treated. And so people think about going to hospitals to die or dying in their home, but then bringing in an outside service to help with that. And the idea well, of, of a community death doula, which is what I teach, is that the people within your family and within the community will be able to assist you with this. So we really have to re-educate ourselves at this point because we've lost a lot of what was very natural to begin with. You helped your grandmother, your, your uncle, your siblings, your children, you helped them out of life in your own home for many, many generations and still currently, obviously around the world. But we've lost a lot of that. So a death doula at this point is somebody who probably needs more training to understand how to do that if it has not been modeled for them. So there is both a new idea and a very old tradition. And so this weaving that kind of happens in the death doula world kind of crosses between somebody having training who goes like a professional route. They actually want to make money doing this. And then what I teach and what I really speak about in the book is having this be a very natural part of your your community, your home, and even your everyday life. And we can talk about that more with um, the term death nesting. So to shorten that, a death doula is a non-medical holistic caregiver. Okay, wonderful. And you make a distinction in the book, and I think this is what you were just uh, speaking to, was the idea of an ancient death doula, which would be the one that is kind of organic in the community, in the family, in the home, and versus the modern death doula, which is one that's kind of certified. Is that correct? Yeah. So there is no certification. Oh, okay. There's no, there's no certification. There's no licensure. There's no governing body. So on a state level or on a federal level, level, a death doula is not recognized as a profession. So these trainings that are certificate trainings, or you know, you could be certified by a particular organization, but these certificate trainings are are, are really they're new. And people are trying it out. People are really trying to make a career out of it because obviously we are in great need of having um, caregivers for those that are dying, and especially the elder care, the, the silver tsunami, as it's called at this point, that's quickly approaching. There are going to be a lot of people that need care. So it's not crazy to think that the death doula path could be a professional path, but I like to bring it back to everybody can do this right right should be as natural as holding a child's hand going across the street yeah i love the idea i i don't know the meaning of doula my understanding is that it was like a midwife and that's how i always think of a death doula is that it's a death midwife and i just always like that idea that we have someone who's bringing us into the world, but then someone who's helping lead us out into the next. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The, the term doula, I believe is Greek and it is a female servant. Okay. So obviously it does not have to be just a female, just 
that's where that term originated. And yeah, it's, it, 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 it seems natural that that would be the same person, right? This, the, right. the person who has like the same kind of calm energy, who's trusting that what's happening is, is good and okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I found it really interesting in the, in your book, you noted that there was a 2020 report from the uh, CDC that about 31% of people now die at home. And there does seem to be this transition where we're kind of rethinking death and dying. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, just out of your experience, do you have any idea of why that might be happening? Yeah. So it's interesting. People are, people are living longer at this point, although that's but people are living longer, but not necessarily better. And so the hospitals can only take so many people. And so the hospitals are actually sending a lot of people back home again. And that does not necessarily mean that they're getting some kind of beautiful at-home care. Sometimes it's they're not getting adequate care at all, but the hospital is, you know, they're at capacity. The nursing homes are unavailable. They're at capacity. Residential care, you know, a lot of these things are expensive. So although people, it's funny, when I talk with people, they, a lot of them want to die at home. Not all of them. Some of them are very comfortable in a hospital setting, but a lot of them want to die at home. And yet, when it comes down to it, like when the time comes, it's almost like a fantasy that they have that they that they're imagining dying at home is going to be so peaceful. But then, you know, sometimes a panic starts to set in and then they're like, I don't necessarily know if I want to die at home. I, maybe I'm going to get more care. Maybe they can save me. Maybe this can be extended elsewhere. Um, so it does kind of go back and forth. And, um, you know, hospice plays a really important role. So if people can have proper medication where they're not feeling any pain, then that's a scenario that is that can be really wonderful to be at home. Hospice is not always available in, right. in every community. It's not always wanted. There's not always adequate care at home. But I think in people's hearts, they're most comfortable at home in bed. And right. so when they imagine their death, it's at home in bed. Yeah. 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 My 40th birthday, I, I bought it. I, I consider it my, my adult bed. And when I bought it, that was my thought is like, this is the bed to die in. <laughs> it was a nice, comfortable bed. Perfect. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, what led you on this path to becoming a death doula? Hmm. So I, I guess ultimately there was a gentleman who I was, I fell in love with this old man and he was homeless. And I used to coordinate these really big fashion shows and I loved it. And I, you know, booked the music and I'd have all of these great events all over the place. And they just kept feeling more and more and more empty. <laughs> Every one of them that, that I threw. And one night on the way home, it was very late at night, maybe midnight or so. And I was driving past and I saw this old gentleman sleeping on a bench. And it was November. It was like 20 degrees outside. And he had a walker next to him and a catheter attached to him. I was like, what the heck is this? So I pulled over and talked to him for a minute and found out that he had no home. And 
I invited him home with me. <laughs> so my kids were, he was 89 years old. Wow. And my children were at their father's house for the night. And so I was like, come on, do you want to come home with me? And he had a walker. So I kind of piggybacked him up the stairs to my apartment. And I hid the knives just in case he like got a surge of energy in the middle of the night and was unpredictable. I don't know. So that was the only weapon I could think of in my house. So from there, I started caring for him and I was realizing what it's like to be in an old body that doesn't function the way that you want it to. And then the, the medical obstacles, then also the emotional, emotional obstacles and the fears of dying, but also in a circumstance that's beyond your control. So not just like the normal things that happen to people as they're aging and getting closer to their death, but also the circumstances of, of being unhomed. And so I was having a lot of meetings with the hospital and the police department and the fire department and social services. And he didn't want to be in a house. He didn't want a permanent residence. He wanted to live out on the streets, but he wanted to be able to have shelter when it was cold. Mm. So this was a really tricky thing to work with because I thought, oh, great, I can find him housing and this will be fantastic. And he said, I don't want housing. So this was this was a huge education for me in a few ways. One, working with this elderly man, working with an unhomed person, and then also just working with my own idea of what dying should be like. <laughs> like I couldn't superimpose my ideas of what a good place for him to die would be. So that kind of had some rewiring that had to happen in my brain. And that really set me on the track of, I became a licensed nurse assistant and I did herbal care for elders. I did a training and I became a hospice volunteer and I became director of Meals on Wheels. So I really embraced all of this work before doing death doula training. And I knew I, I it I knew that this was the right thing for me to do as soon as I started doing all of all of this work. And did you help him as he transitioned were you able to see him through to the end that is it's really sad i did not mm. so he he ended up reconnecting with an old friend which is which is ideal right this is this is what you would want to have happen he had no one while i was working with him for that year mm. and he ended up connecting with an old friend and he died in the hospital and I wasn't there when he died in the mm -hmm. hospital mm -hmm. so that the friend was able to get him to be admitted to the hospital and stay because the hospital kept releasing him. They kept putting him out onto the street over and over and over again with his walker and his catheter. And I was <laughs> in shock. I'm like, yeah. how can you just keep doing this? But they did. Yeah. Um, that's kind of criminal. I think. Yeah. It's not cool. And then yeah. I, so I, I tucked my phone number into his pockets. He'd always forget that he could use me mm. as a resource and the hospital wouldn't call me because I wasn't his legal next of kin. And so, and he kept forgetting to call me. So they kept releasing him and I was so frustrated. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you found him and were able to help him. That's, that's amazing. Not everyone would do that. 
but also it brings to mind something that you noted in the book is that it's not uncommon for the person who is dying to make decisions that others do not agree with because it sounds like that's what he was doing and that that would be a learning lesson for you and it would be a learning lesson for the rest of us because we all have these ideas of what people should do um, but the dying person should have the final say right yeah yeah absolutely and it's it's you know people tend to die as they have lived and i i you know you may have heard that before and it's really true so sometimes people will make like a complete turn and but oftentimes they're like no actually you know like with this gentleman i like it on the street Mm. i like it out there and (laughs) so when you're caring for somebody who's dying there is usually the the focus that people think is that all of the attention is on the person who's dying when really there's a lot going on inside you too like as the caregiver this is an emotional growth period and it's not just them that's doing the work right and as a death doula you are working with the family as well and helping them through the process yeah yeah so i try to be as hands off as possible. So when I started doing this work, I did a lot of one-on-one care and I still do. I take certain clients that I work with, um, but I realized pretty quickly that I had enough knowledge that other people should have, that the knowledge that I had should really be just something that communities know how to do. So that's why I decided to write death nesting. Um, And when I go into a family situation at this point, I teach all of the caregivers, I build the care team and I teach all of the caregivers what to do. So that really, I'm just on the outskirts. I really step back and I guide people because the amount of, the amount of growth that's happening for them through the caring process is tremendous. And the more, that this can be modeled within the home and within the community, the better the community is going to be, the better the family is going to be. It doesn't mean that it's this perfect, beautiful, you know, fairy tale story of a person dying. It's a real life situation of a person dying and all of the things that come up and all of the emotions and the uncertainties and the anger and the sorrow. And so for me and for a lot of death doulas it's to just kind of normalize what's happening and recognize people's emotions without shutting them down turning them down pushing them away like it's bad you know just saying yeah this is really hard and i don't really know what to do in this situation either or you're doing it just right so it's really encouraging the 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 family and and or the caregivers and the community to care for the one who's dying So a lot of times I'll go in and have an initial meeting with, with either the person who asked me to come and, or the person who's dying. And then sometimes the next step is to have a meeting with all of the the caregivers with the whole circle and they can ask questions and I can show them how to change the sheets. I can show them how to empty drains, just some really basic nursing things. So hospice can do that too, if hospice is involved, but they don't always have enough time and they don't always have enough personnel to do this. 
And because things can change so quickly within the situation, within the dying situation, you could have a whole team of people lined up, educated, a schedule set up, and the person has a quick change overnight. And then you have to readjust. You're like, okay, all of those plans that we just made, throw them out the door because now the situation is like this. So hospice won't always be able to come back in and help everybody readjust. So there are some good things about having a death doula, having somebody who's outside of a regulated system mm -hmm. to come in and help. But for me and with community death care, the key is really to empower the people so that when this is over, they can feel like they did a good job, not that the death doula did a good job. Right. Yeah, I like that. It, you know, it seems to me in so many ways that we have kind of forgotten how to die, you know, and I think it's a lot because our culture just doesn't want to look at death at all. And I know from experience, you know, when my parents died, especially my mom, she was in hospice and it was tricky. And fortunately, there were some amazing hospice workers there that could actually help, you know, and have conversations with us. But there are definitely questions that come up. And, you know, how do I best honor my mother and, but also at the same time, maneuver through this process myself. And there is something I want to ask you about this, but I want to I'm going to come back to it because I think that before we move any further, we should maybe look at the title of your book, Death Nesting. What is that? Mm -hmm. Death Nesting. The The original thought was, you know, I've, I've had three children and it's a very common term to nest when you're about to give birth. And you see it in nature too. You know, they're preparing, they're preparing the space. They're getting everything ready, the animals, the people. And, and it's really a community kind of, a community activity really, where somebody says, oh, you know, I have a bassinet. You know, this was my child's. Do you want to borrow this? Or, you know, it's, it's, it feels very natural to do that when, when babies are being born. And then also when, with um, menstruation, some women will do this also and they just kind of like start to gather their things together or and they might not even know why and then they're like oh I know why <laughs> I'm about to get my period or and sometimes it's very intentional and you know line up whatever food and get ready and you have your book and you have but that wasn't being done for death I, I didn't see a lot of that happening for death that I was aware of so the idea of death nesting is that it's definitely forming the physical space, getting the physical space ready. That's for, for those that are very fortunate to have a death that is not sudden, that they're able to think about it and plan. I also think about death nesting as something that happens just really how you live your life is death nesting. Like how you you know, process your emotions, how you interact with people, the the plans that you make or you don't make. And all of these things start to accumulate and paint your life story. And they all will impact your moment of death, whether your moment of death is very sudden or whether it is uh, prolonged and you can think about it. 
a lot of times I work with people, they haven't thought about their death their entire life. They live their life. And then they want to have a quote unquote good death, which is something that a lot of death doulas talk about. We could talk about that idea if you'd like, but they want to have a, a good death. And so we talk about what that means to them. And, but sometimes it's almost too late at that point. So they're asking me while they have a limited amount of time. And then they're reflecting back on their entire life and, and thinking about all of the things that they could have done differently, that they wish they had done differently. And, and so I come in and I'm like, okay, we're probably not going to be able to fix the past 65 years of your life. Let's work on right now. Like let's work on what we can do and we can come up with some version. And, and so, you know, in, in working with people, I realized that the death nesting needed to start when they were children. This, this is something, the idea of embracing death, embracing the mortality, being able to just talk about it, to have a vocabulary that didn't feel like taboo really needed to start when they were tiny so that they could make certain decisions throughout their life so that they could try and forgive themselves so that they could try and release some of the guilt and shame and regret and also to mark those points in their life when they were truly comfortable or truly happy to really say ah i feel great right now those are the things that you really need on your deathbed or would be very beneficial on your deathbed to be able to recall a feeling that you just felt so comfortable and everything was okay and to be able to capture that. I, I have people do a visualization and it, it's in the book where they're imagining their ideal death. And ideally you would do this long before you're actively dying, long before you have a, a terminal diagnosis or in any kind of active phase of dying where you really imagine this this beautiful death exactly as you want it and it can be as unique and as weird as you want it to be it doesn't it doesn't matter it's yours it's your time and it feels really good like it feels just right and to do that as a meditation and maybe even do it like several times until it's in there and then let it go set it aside and that way you can access that whenever or wherever your death happens to be. You can go back and say, okay, I can find that feeling. I visualized it. You know, the power of imagination is underrated. <laughs> and it, it's an incredibly powerful tool for healing. So I think death nesting, although it is the physical space, it's really about how we live our life. Yeah. I like that very much. I've often said that I think that this fear of death is really a fear of life. And I know at least one person that I have told them over and over that on their deathbed, they're going to look back and they're going to have regrets. And it's like, you know, don't live that way. And I like this idea of and, and this is something i try to do i have images of death like little skulls and whatnot uh, around just to remind me that death is my ally as i move through life mm -hmm. you know because if i think of it that way then i should live well mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yep. And then, you know, I, I talk about the the senses so much right. in death nesting because they are phenomenal, but we take them for granted. And it's it's always like humans are trying to <laughs> the drive for the newest, best, most shocking thing, like the shock to your system, like the new IMAX cinema and the new whatever. I, I went to a Broadway show recently and I was expecting like, you know, the, a musical. I was expecting just, you know, whatever, just like some Broadway. <laughs> the lasers that were going and the sound wow. system, and the things rattling and the full body experience, I was completely shocked. And they're just people, real life people in real time acting on the stage. And yet even that is now a full body surround sound experience was really cool. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it at all. I can't wait to go back. But, and just being able to hear at all, just being able to hear, you know, and, and how long, if at all, do people actually spend appreciating the fact that these vibrations are something that they are able to sense in their body that, these things then create meaning and feelings and emotions and you have, you know, a, a visceral response. It's, it's so rare, I think, that people pay attention to that aspect of it. Yeah. Um, those are the things that really matter when, when you're dying. Yeah. Well, I think it, my sense is that we kind of live our lives as if we are not embodied beings. Mm -hmm. And I like the idea of at death, you know, we, the body's still important. And I even had the note down here. I wanted to ask you about this because you, you know, you did right. You know, dying is a sensory experience. And I think that's kind of important to, you know, at our last moments, appreciate and embody that <laughs> the senses you know because we're not going to have them I, I, we don't know but for too much longer mm -hmm. right yeah yeah and we did that for my mom as well we tried to have some scented candles uh, she was in a hospice so we had some scented candles and we actually even set up she died right before christmas and my mom loved christmas and the hospice workers were able to bring in, they brought in a little Christmas tree for her and we watched Charlie Brown's Christmas. That was her favorite, <laughs> uh, you know? So we celebrated Christmas with her, even though she was in a coma at the time, uh, we celebrated Christmas just to, just to have that memory. That's um, beautiful. I bet she loved it. I think that's so sweet. It's things, it's things like that, that can make all the difference, you know? And, and even from a coma, you know, those feelings of like love and beauty, whatever, whatever Christmas meant to her to have like those feelings awake and alive through her dying process, I think is mm -hmm. incredibly yeah. fortunate. Yeah. Yeah. The one regret I had though, was we never, and this is difficult and I can see where a death below would help is we never had the conversations about dying there was once when she was in a rehab center where she called me because my brother's dog had just died 
And it had died a few weeks, but they hadn't told her. They didn't want to upset her. But I, and I think it was like the last phone call I got from my mom and she was in tears and she was just like, you know, crying. She goes, I'm going to be next. And my immediate response was, oh, don't say that mom, you know, and I regret not having the foresight to say, well, let's talk about that because it's so uncomfortable. And I would imagine that as a death doula, you can help the dying and their loved ones have these important conversations. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's exactly that, but you see you are, were near family are the right ones to talk about it because right. you caught that moment. And you're like, yeah. so it's actually, you didn't need a death doula. You just needed it to be okay to talk about it, yeah. which is why yeah. I'm saying it has to start in childhood was she, did she end up being the next one to die? Yes. Yeah. So she knew. Yeah. 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 It was, it was rough. My dad had died and then my mom and my brother almost nearly died all at the same time. It was, yeah, it was, it was brutal. <laughs> it was a brutal year. Yeah. So, and my mom was one that kind of avoided the conversations and, you know, and she went into a coma the day that we put her into hospice um, mm-hmm. and never came out again. And, uh, and that actually is something that I wanted to ask you about because you wrote in the book, something about time retrieval. Mm-hmm. And you had this story of someone who had, was kind of confused, I guess, because of all the, you know, the chemo and the other things. And you were able to, kind of work things out in this waking dream state. So I wanted to ask you about this, if you could maybe explain time retrieval a little bit more and maybe discuss that moment. And the reason that I'm connecting this with my mom is I had this thought that it would be so helpful if I could go into, I I actually started looking up, you know, like death shamans because I thought someone needed to go in and like help her find her way. If that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Well, first of all, I think it's beautiful that she went into a coma the day. Now, was she somebody who, who liked to do things? Did she like to, she didn't like to do things. She liked to go to Walmart. (laughs) So what I mean is like activities, like, no, she didn't like doing any activities. No, no. She liked going to Walmart. <laughs> okay, going to Walmart. Well, some people, so I think it's beautiful that there, that she like, she checked out once she had the amount of care mm. that she was going to be able to receive. So I think, I think that that's interesting. She let go of something right then and there. Yeah. You know? And it's impossible to know what kind of, work she was doing during that time right so in a in a in a coma state i have not been in a coma i'm guessing they have access to a great deal more things than we do so their consciousness is in a different place and of course going through the dying process the consciousness is in and out of the body and it's it's playing very much like a a baby still in utero Mm -hmm. where the consciousness is in and out of of the the body. So what I have done is, 
you you need some kind of energetic permission from the person and i had a really good relationship with this person so i didn't think it was going to be a no but you always ask anyway so when i sat down and when you're sensitive to this you can it's no is no so strongly that you're just like oh okay and it would be like feel creepy to keep going so this is fine. Like if you're not sure, you know, you make the connection, you visualize the person, you ask the person's spirit, psyche, whatever it is that you want to say, whatever word you want to say, you know, can, can we do this work together on this level? And if you're confused about an answer and you've been really clear with your intention and getting in touch with them, probably the answer is sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because the no would be like a no. So I knew enough about this gentleman that I was just so working with him there and it's in like a dream state. And to me, I I visualize it like a plane, like a a plane just overhead, just over our head. And if the past is to the left and the future is to the right, um, just starting to grab some of these different major events that had happened in the person's life. So you can see, ah, when they were 17, they went for their first trip to France. And you pinch that and pull it down and attach it to the image of the person that you have. So if you have an image of the person there in front of you, you know, they can be far away from you, they can be right in front of you, whatever it is. And imagine a timeline and just start to pull those things down and just attach it to them and including to where they are right now. And I think that's a lot of just what memories are. It's Mm. just threads. And I think they just get tangled or severed or whatever as we just forget things. But it doesn't mean that they're completely gone. (laughs) I mean, Mm. this is how I think of this. And, you know, it's obvious sometimes when you're working with people who are elderly or who are dying and all of a sudden they recall something that you're like, mom, how did you remember that? You can't even remember X, Y, and Z. And all of a sudden you just retrieved this exact person's name, this exact memory, this exact time when you know very well that that whole part of their life is obscured, you know, because memory affects obviously different parts of the brain. So it's not that they're gone. It's just that the, the threads are just loose. They're loosened. So the idea is to attach them back to the person so that they can do what they want to do with them. Hmm. Um, and that's, that's what happened in that particular case. And I've been able to do it a few other times too with good results. Yeah. Yeah. What got me thinking about it is because I stayed at the hospice for a while and I was spending the night there. And then, you know, one of the hospice nurses told me that, you know, sometimes people want to die in private. So I would, I started leaving at night, but one of the nights that I was still there, I have a, every now and then I have the sleep paralysis and sometimes I get like lucid dreams and I had a kind of a combination of the two. And when I woke from it, I was disappointed. I'm like, oh, I wanted to find my mom because I felt like she had been kind of lost a little bit. And so being able to like retrieve those little bits I thought could have helped. And that's when I started thinking, you know, I need a death shaman. And that's how I discovered death doulas was by starting to do that research. Uh, I, I wanted to ask though, the way we're talking is in instances where people know they're going to die and, or the, the family knows that the dying person, you know, in their last days, but not all deaths are like that. 
-hmm. Some deaths are quite sudden. Some deaths are accidental. How can a death doula assist in those kinds of deaths? Yeah, it depends. There's, there's lots of ways. So I do mention in the book that um, I think that emergency death doulas should should be a thing. They aren't yet, but I've heard rumors, and I know that some of my students who work in the medical field, like um, who are um, in emergency medical services, that they say yes, we should definitely have a death doula that rides with us in the ambulance or on the fire truck, and being able to help in those emergency situations, because the thing is, is if you if a person's actively dying on the side of the road a death doula could absolutely be right there with them and does it have to be a trained death doula absolutely not there are there are death doulas without the title across the planet and throughout time whoever shows up at the bedside of the person or at the that moment of death whoever is there is the death doula and so what would you say help is coming. I am here. I'm going to let your family know that, you know, where you are and just some, some reassuring things that your family will be contacted. You, you're, you're safe. It depends on what the situation is and what it is that you want to repeat to them. But one of the things that is the most important, if you don't know the outcome is just saying, I'm here with you. You're not alone. You're not alone. I'm here with you. If you, you know, every, every person and every death doula is unique and every religion is unique and every spiritual idea is unique. It's hard working with strangers because you don't know what it is that they believe in. Um, you can say that you can say, you know, boy, I don't know if I'd venture there, but perhaps it would depend on what I was feeling at the time. But you know, whatever kind of support you feel like you need, whatever kind of energetic support you feel like you would need right now, call it in, call in energetic support. That can mean anything to them, anything at all. When you say energetic support, you could be referring to the ground, the earth, you could be referring to the the medical system, the, the rescue workers that are on their way. You could be referring to a particular God or goddess, the trees, it can be anything. So some kind of like general term, but a lot of times people just want to know that they're not alone. Hmm. And to me, I have to believe, and I do believe that their team is coming for them. They're, they're, they're people, their ancestors, their spirits, their angels, whoever they are, they're coming for them. So if my job is to just be here on earth and say, I'm here with you, help is on the way, or I'm going to let your family know that I was here with you, that you didn't, I don't want to say that didn't die alone, even as I'm thinking, <laughs> it's not like, don't say that, don't say that. Yeah. But, but just repeating some of these general things, I think could be really helpful. You're not alone. Uh, I think is a good one. So the other thing is, if you miss that part, then there's all of the family, the friends, the grief, the fallout that happens after the death. And this is really, that part is really hard. And it, it's especially hard when there is a suicide, mm. which is a, it's almost a, it's almost in its own category 
because there are, there are so many emotions that come up around that, that are very hard to touch upon or compare to any other kind of death, but there, there's the family, there's the grief support and finding resources and helping them find tools, find things to do, people to talk to, ways to scream, ways to get stagnant energy out of their body. Yeah. 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 It's, I can, I can see that. And, you know, just from my own personal life experiences, the sudden deaths are, I, I have found those the more traumatic when you know that someone's dying. I think that you have that time to process a little bit, you know, people, you know, the, the thing is you're, you're right when you have time to think about it and it starts working in people's brains and emotions the moment they hear that somebody has a terminal diagnosis but people still get shocked mm. when it actually happens and i'm not saying it's the same as a as an a unexpected traumatic death it's it's not the same but the shock still happens right. and Sometimes people, I've been working with them for months and they've, the person is on hospice even, and mm. they have this slow, gradual death. And then still when the moment of death comes, it's still as a shock to the system. It's still as a shock. People still can't believe it. But yes, because, because the sudden deaths are so heart-wrenching, are so destabilizing, for that reason, I think it's important to starting way back in childhood, talk about death, notice life cycles, notice that some animals get hit by cars, and then taking the time with, with your child or yourself as a full-grown adult, going to look at the body of the dead animal on the side of the road. So it, it, it starts to do something within you that hopefully does not terrorize you. But the idea is just to have it not be foreign. Mm. It doesn't mean that it's going to make it feel better. Right. It just means that you've seen it similarly before. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that there's a cultural shift happening in regards to how we think about death and how we approach death? And what is kind of behind that question is that you discuss wailing. And what you were just saying that came to mind because you said, you know, as far as you're concerned, we need to start wailing more. And I see that in our culture that we kind of bottle it all up and deny it. And I agreed that, you know, we need to like find avenues to let it out and starting early, I think can help with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm just kind of curious if you think that we're at a point where we're at least at the very early stages of allowing ourselves to wail a little bit more. I can't wait to see what happens with these future generations. You know, we'll only get to witness a few more generations before we have to check out ourselves, but the pandemic definitely changed a lot. And so people were awakening to the fact that they could die from this invisible thing. At, at an age much earlier than they expected. So that did start to rattle people. And I'm sure, you know, some of the traumas from that, I know they haven't all un unwound yet. I know that they're still out there, but 
these younger generations are hot. We don't know what they're going to do. Like, <laughs> I don't know how old you are, but with, with my generation, I'm Gen X. I'm on the tail end of Gen X, but my sisters are older than me. So I kind of coupled on to their midstream Gen X ideas and feelings. And we didn't really talk about a lot. We didn't really, you know, you, you suck it up. Nobody necessarily wanted to listen to what it is that you had to say anyway. And you got to work and you did your business and you went home and checked out and whatever it happened to be. But and we were very creative. But then like millennials, they started crying about things and they started talking about their emotions and they started saying, I don't feel heard. And they started saying, you know, all these different things. And that I think a lot of us were like, why are you talking about your emotions right now? Like there's a job to do. And, and then it, the younger generations really drawing lines for themselves. Like I am, I'm not doing that. That's not worth my time. That's not my, I'm deserve this kind of respect and value. I, so it's really, really changing. I don't know. I don't know where this is going. I don't, what I see with the death doula boom, the interest in becoming a death doula, it's a mixed bag. Some, some of them are, let's see, from the people in my class, they're probably age 35 and up. And a lot of them are looking for a career change. And then younger, they're very much interested, but sometimes it's more like it's, it's a, it's, they're trying to break open the places that are taboo and delve into them, just like any healthy, you know, curious person. Yeah. I'm fumbling around because I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know yeah, where this not, is going. Yeah. That's okay. That's an honest answer. That's an yeah. honest answer. Um, I, I, I just hope that as a society, we become a little bit more compassionate towards death and dying and open to it. And, and I think that I am Gen X, but I'm also very open with my emotions <laughs> and, and expressing them. Um, one of the things that, and this is, I think, connected to all of this that I found so fascinating in your book is you, you had this question, which was, should the dead attend their own funerals? And when I read that question, I'm like, what in the world does she mean? <laughs> yeah. And uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah. What, how many, how many funerals have you been to in your lifetime? I don't know, maybe five or six. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So even just that, so you've only been to five or six funerals, right? Um, but I'm sure you've known a lot more people who have died. So it's, yeah. It's not a lot of people don't don't really attend funerals all that mm. much anymore, but and a lot of people have never seen a dead body. A lot mm. of adults have never actually seen a body. Now, it used to be much more common that right. the body of the person who had died would be present. And of course, that's, you know, depending on different religions and et cetera. But it was much more common for the body to be present and now it's not in any form so even in cremated form there oftentimes there is no urn 
present. There is no body. There is no urn. There's just, you know, sometimes not even a visual representation of the person. Sometimes it's a celebration of life and you don't even necessarily see any pictures of the person who had died. It's a name floating around. Um, and is it good? Is it bad? I don't know. It's certainly different. Mm. Um, <laughs> I, you know, and when I, I ask this question to everybody that I work with, not just my students, have you ever seen a dead body? And overwhelmingly, the answer is no. Mm. Overwhelmingly, I'm talking like 90% of the people have never seen a dead body. And that's a problem. <laughs> because yeah. if you ask them, have you ever seen a dead body on a TV show? They're all like, well, yeah. So think about the circumstances where then people have encountered death. They see it on in the media, in movies, in video games. They're all of these fantastical situations where death is present and never actually in their hands. Right. And it, it it then it does something different in, in your head. Like if you spend some time with a body, you are going to feel alive very quickly and very deeply because you understand how dead dead is <laughs> and in comparison even though you might not feel great about your life you are definitely alive you are definitely living and you know kids little ones will see cartoons they have an idea that you know somebody died and they back up again and then they're yeah. alive again and then so little by little we start to build a story in our minds about what death is and what it means and how we should act and then when an actual death happens all of the things all of the ideas that we had churning through our head about death don't make sense there's a disconnect because it, it, it you've never actually tangibly understood it for what it is and so you might have irrational fears you might think that you're not supposed to cry you might think that you're um supposed to go through these stages of grief you might think because it's all so removed if you haven't seen it like um modeled in a healthy way within your community if you didn't help carry grandma's body out of the house if you didn't if your dog went to the vet and was euthanized there and never came home so people spend a lot of time just like completely detached from the the physical death and then you know your mind is not necessarily a safe place to explore death without or reasoning it out without you know talking about it and trying to make sense of it because a lot of fears pop up a lot of right nonsensical things yeah well, i love the idea of after death the family those who want to can like wash the body you know kind of care for the body and i think that that's something that we have so lost and it does give that you know connection to the body and it's i see it as like a last moment of care a last gesture of love to the person and I think that that's something that's really important. And I would love to see more people be able to do that and be open to doing that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. 
No, it's just, it can be so beautiful. You can even ask for, even if the person didn't die in your home, you can ask for a washcloth in the hospital. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's really wonderful when nurses have taken a death doula training. And again, doesn't have to be a death doula training. A, a nurse has seen this modeled or has been through it. Mm. Um, and so they're able to, in their scrubs, with their name tag on, you know, they're able to give the person permission to touch the one who has died, the loved one. Because a lot of times people are like, hands off, should I touch them? Should I? And of course you can touch them, you know, mm -hmm. short of having a communicable disease, which you wouldn't have access to them anyway, of course you can touch them. So helping it to, to feel much more natural, not that everybody wants to, but there is a, a organization called One Washcloth and they really mm -hmm. encourage people to to just wash their face to just wash their hands yeah. it doesn't have to be anything you know outrageous and a lot of times the the people then they'll hug them they'll sob on them they'll cry they'll yeah. crawl into the bed with them there and a lot of times people just need that permission they just yeah. need the okay yeah 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 i can see that I know we're starting to run out a little bit of time, but I do have a couple more questions for you. One is you had mentioned the different religious traditions, and I'm kind of curious, do you have to learn, I mean, how the different religions approach death? How do you work with that as a death doula? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. So I know some very basic courtesies for a variety of religions, but I do not know all of their customs and I don't feel like I need to, or I should. So I, the way that I encourage other people also, unless they want to make this their study, unless they want to make this their thing and dive into religious customs is just to know enough so that you're not going to be offensive to the family, but to support the family um, so that they can support their loved one. Mm. So let them, they know how to do their traditions. So let them do it. You don't need to come in with um, these sacred objects that mean nothing to you and set up a shrine. Um, learn enough basics so that you can encourage the family to just do what they do. And sometimes that's just outside support. So doulas don't always have to do hands-on support. Sometimes they will never touch the person at all and they can just be a supportive presence for those that are giving the care to the person. So a lot of times people will think that the death doula cares for the, the person who's dying, not necessarily. Sometimes the death doula is only caring for the support team, only caring for the spouse, only caring for, there's so many things that can be set up around the outside that are everyday human things, no matter what your religion is, collecting the mail, mm -hmm. setting up transportation for the kids home from school, doing the grocery shopping, whatever it happens to be. So there are some things that you don't always have to be in the inner circle. And, you know, the, the families, they can feel when you're pushing, like mm -hmm. when you're not showing up as, as just who you are. Right. that you're pushing to wear a certain hat to have a certain air they can feel that and you know I don't know what other death doulas do with their contracts <laughs> but you can be kicked out it's an honor to be there it's an honor to be helping right. and to be serving the family so showing up in your most authentic way is always the best bet mm, yeah and I'm 
also kind of curious because I was thinking in terms of the different religions that, you know, for example, I was thinking like in Catholicism, just use that one because it was on the top of my head. You know, there's this idea of like the priest and the last rites, but it doesn't seem like there's a lot of other help. And so I was thinking in terms of the traditions working with the spiritual leaders and in conjunction with that, do you know if spiritual leaders in different traditions are actually trained in something that's like a death doula or do they reach out to death doulas for assistance or is it the family members that do this? Yeah. So uh, religions have this down organized religions. They know what to do with the dead and they have their very specific way. So the, the Jewish traditions are beautiful. The Muslim traditions are beautiful. The, the Christian traditions. So they, they have their own, their own thing, their own way. And they have a community that that rallies around them. Um, And it's the, it's sometimes the people who have broken from their, their tradition that might have some challenges. And then, you know, asking the rabbi to, to help asking the, the sangha to help asking the, when, when there's been a a break of some sort, but it still can be asked. Mm. So that's where I, you know, I'm, that's where it's religion is a lot of times really helpful you know, mm-hmm. having a, a sacred community or, and I'm sure I know that there are now spiritual communities that are, that are leaning toward that also, like the home funeral movement. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times home funerals happen to be coupled with a natural burial or sometimes, but so, so each of these communities do it differently. So in the United States where so many people have either broken from their religion or, you know, there, there seems to be this like insurgence of people who are spiritual, but they are not religious. Right. And so they, those are the ones that are really interested. A lot of those people end up taking my death doula training because they're trying to build what it is that they imagine could be a, a spiritual ceremonial experience outside of organized religion. So in some ways it's starting from scratch. In some ways it's saying, what did my ancestors do? And some ways it's just, you know, what's easiest, what what yeah. feels natural at the time. Right. Okay. Yes. Thank you for that. Because you were able to articulate, I think an answer to well, what I asked, but I guess I was also kind of curious because I knew that a lot of the religious communities, like you said, already have this down. And it was like, so is it and the term? I, I didn't want to say secular, but I think, you know, kind of pointing out the spiritual, but not religious. I think that's perfect. And we are seeing this kind of transformation in religiosity and spirituality in the United States, at least where people are kind of leaving the traditional churches. So I can see that that would go hand in hand with um, an increase in uh, need for death doulas. 
Yeah. And this kind of brings us like full or uh, full circle here where you were saying, do you think there's a change in people recognizing the mortality? And, mm. and I was like, well, I don't know. We're going to have to see what happens with these generations because it's going to take generations to heal what it is right. that we have completely broken off from. But there's a difference between caring for the dying and caring for the dead. And I would say, yes, we are awakening this new kind of experience in caring for the dead. The green burial movement, composting, home funerals, these are all things that are gaining popularity and younger funeral directors, funeral directors that are willing to step outside of the cemetery. So that is changing and it's it's visible. Caring for the dying, that's harder for me to answer. Yeah. Yeah. I think we are have our hands full coming down. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. And do you help with the because I, I I would imagine most of the time it would be the person who's dying has their wishes of what they want to have happen to the body. Is that something that you can help with in terms of the discussions, because I know, for example, I don't want the formaldehyde. I just, I want that green burial, you know, dig a hole, stick me in, plant a tree. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Yep. Yes. That's definitely something that, that death doulas can help with if they're trained in that. So the other thing is, so I just distinguished caring for the dying, caring for the dead. They're really two different things and caring for the dead. You better know the laws involved caring for the dead or you can run into some legalities you could have your name front page news if you're not careful if you're charging for these services and you're not a licensed funeral director or mortician so but it however if a death doula is educated in disposition and post-mortem care they can offer different kinds of information especially and so this is also going back to community death care where I don't have to know everything that's available in every state across the United States or in Canada or Mexico. I just have to know my state. And even more specifically, I have to know my town. So I know what's legal in my state. I know the options that are available, how far away and how many green burial locations there are. So that definitely is something that is information that we can share, but being really careful not to push in any one direction if somebody wants to get embalmed and they want to be in the cemetery and they want to be in a solid oak casket they could they could be an iron they could be an iron you say okay yeah yeah that's you know and not saying do you know how bad that is for the environment or have you thought about no just give them information yeah and that's something that came across throughout the book was this sort of non-judgmentalism that you're neither condoning or condemning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really important because first of all, it, it's a very, very sensitive subject to begin with. And these changes that we're talking about that I hope for, like greener funerals and greener deaths, and these are things that I hope for and I aspire to, and you know, they're close to my heart. I can't push that on right people. These are really, really like long, slow, gradual changes that, that need to happen. And yeah, the, the, the kinds of burials that have been traditional that a lot of our older generations feel comfortable with are, are not good for the environment, but 
neither are flying airplanes across the world right. and all of the yachts and all of that. So, you know, you kind of have to pick your battles <laughs> right, and, right. and what you model then can attract other people to you and they can then, you know, embrace that and spread that without trying to force your way into making people believe a certain way. That's okay. how I yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, again, I know that we are running out of time here. So let me ask you the final questions. What, what do you have coming up next? What are you working on? Hmm. I have a, I do an annual death and dying retreat in Vermont. So that's coming up, but there are two programs coming up that haven't been announced yet. One is going to be at Karma Choling in Vermont. It's a Buddhist meditation center and I'll be having a death nesting program there and in the spring one in costa rica so that's really exciting wonderful wonderful mm -hmm. and where can people go to find out more about these retreats and maybe more about you and your work yeah thank you i have two websites which are which are merging it's never ending the whole website mm -hmm. world is just yeah <laughs> anyway two websites one is my first and last name together so annemariekeppel.com without the hyphen okay just all one word, emerykeppel.com. And the other one is stardustmeadow.com. Stardustmeadow.com. And they both have my information on them. Okay, wonderful. I will put links to those and the link to your book in the show notes in the video description. And I found the book really helpful and useful. Well, not useful yet, <laughs> uh, but it had information that I wish I had known. I'll put it that way. I think it would have been really helpful to have had some of that information as I was helping, you know, my parents, you know, transition and, but I've got it now so that I can use it for other family members who are also facing these things. Yeah. But I thank you for the work that you're doing. I think that it's, healing work. And I uh, always commend everyone who's engaged in anything that can help the world be better. And I think that the works of a death doula does things to make the world better. So I thank you for that. And I thank you for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks very much. And that's a wrap on episode 101 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you're a part of my YouTube audience. For anyone who would like to support my work here on Rebel Spirit Radio and please support my work, then please join my Patreon. Some of the perks for our patrons include early access to videos, shout outs to members, a members only Facebook page, access to the Rebel Spirit Radio Discourse server, and a monthly book club where we explore books discussed on the podcast, spiritual and philosophical classics, and books related to the cocktail apocalypse. I mean, remember, I am a professor of philosophy and religious studies, so consider the book club an ongoing classroom where you can go as deep as you would like with me and other Rebel Spirits. Patreon is also going to uh, begin offering free memberships in the next few weeks, so I'll be posting quite a bit of information and material on the Patreon site that is available to everyone, so please take a moment to sign up. You can find the link for the Patreon in the show notes or video description. And of course, if you would prefer to make a one-time donation, you can still do so via PayPal. I still have big plans for the podcast and the YouTube channel. 
right now, this is all a labor of love. So your support will not only help me in continuing what I have been doing here, but will also help me grow the channel and the podcast. I'm going to continue with the Cocktail Apocalypse live stream and plan to create at least one more this coming year. I'm also going to be creating more video content for the YouTube channel, and I'm working on putting together a few classes. This is going to take a lot of time and work, so I will be tremendously grateful for any support that you can provide. Another way that you can help the podcast is to share it with friends, family members, coworkers, and share it on social media as well. That really is one of the best ways you can help and support the podcast. Help me grow my audience. As I always like to say, I'm here in the front range doing missionary work in regards to religion, spirituality, and ecology, psychedelics, and consciousness, and how all of this can help us heal humanity's relationship with the sacred earth. So if you feel moved by the rebel spirit, and you know I sure hope that you do, then please, by all means, help me share the good news. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help, especially if you listen on Apple. If you have a minute to spare, please consider posting a short but positive review and please subscribe. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to or watching Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.